coming to you from the lab, where we talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Riding Shotgun is my co-host, Big Keith. I'm your host, Mike, and this is The Gun Experiment. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week, Keith and I talk to the guys from Bang Steel, discuss what goes into putting together a long-range shooting setup, and shoot the shit about what goes into making a great steak dinner. I just want to remind everyone that we drop new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month, so be sure to subscribe and share the show with friends. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. If you like the content we're creating, we'd appreciate it if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review, as well as a comment. We'll read any comments you leave in future episodes. As always, by my side tonight, my co-host, the big man, Big Keith. Keith, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing awesome, Mike. I'm uh, super, super excited. I uh, got to hear the Mustang run for about five seconds tonight. Oh, baby. <laughs> yeah, we had some serious problems over the weekend, but uh, our buddy Richie got it uh, all figured out tonight. And uh, we uh, got it. We were able to get it started up, but uh, I don't have the custom tune in it yet. So it still thinks it's stock and uh, it's getting way more fuel than it is supposed to get so it started to run away with itself so i had to shut it off real quick but uh it uh it definitely runs and uh hopefully we'll get did the you, rest of this bundle when it when you when you fired up did you yell it's alive i feel like that's like something you have to yell oh yeah I, I, it was alive. i definitely said that a couple times i mean i <laughs> honestly i was so amped you know i mean you've seen me working on this on weekends a couple times and it, it there were there have been a couple depressing weekends recently so to get to this point after uh, after this past weekend, it, it's a, a big milestone, and you know, start buttoning things up back together, and then uh, you know, we'll, we'll go from awesome. there. Awesome, uh, yeah, pretty yeah. Exciting. I uh, so, I, sp- I spent the whole weekend, so I, I don't know if I told you this, but I've been trying to like kind of build up my home gym a little bit, and you know, I do jujitsu, so I scored a an awesome set of home mats. I mean, they're like high grade, like professional level mats. And, oh, that's uh, what I you needed them. the uh, moving truck for. Yeah, I, I got them for a song. Actually, those are for horse stall mats, which if you've if anyone out there has ever tried to move horse stall mats, they are the most god-awful thing to move because not only are they heavy and dense, but there's nothing to grab onto and they flop all over and they are <laughs> they're horrible. Just trust me on this. Don't ever do it. It just just don't do it. Get a gym membership instead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh enough about that. Enough about our weekend. I am excited to get into this show tonight because a while back. Yeah, a while back, you know, I kind of hooked you up and I got uh, Big Dave. If anybody out there is listening, hasn't listened to the episode about reloading, go check out Reloading with Big Dave. It was an awesome episode. And Keith, that was kind of to you. Tonight, we're going to cater to me a little bit and we're going to talk about long range shooting, which is something I'm dying to get into, which is a yeah. beautiful partnership like you and I, because I think reloading and long range shooting go together really, really well. So anyway, we do. They definitely, definitely. Do. and I and there's you know it, I mean I'm starting with reloading on shotgun for specific reasons because that's what I I've been shooting right now until the 22 league starts back up but um yeah I mean you know there there are very reloading and long range shooting I feel like just have to go together they're like hand oh hand, yeah you know it's like bread and butter you know what I mean yeah. so anyway our guest tonight operate a long range shooting school focused on providing affordable training for the long range rifleman please welcome. Dan and Forrest Newberry from Bang Steel. Guys, how are we doing tonight? Doing well. How about you? We're doing well. How are you doing, Forrest? I'm doing well. So I have to tell a quick funny story for everyone listening out there. I sent an email to these guys. I was really excited. I sent the email. And 
you know, when you go hunting, where do you hunt? In a forest. Well, somehow I got it all mixed up and I was calling forest hunter for like like the first four <laughs> communications. So I, I, I'm going to try really hard not to screw that up tonight. And if I do, yeah, I apologize. Because you're definitely not the only person to do that. I get a lot of people that just, they want to call me hunter for some reason. I don't it know why. It happens all the time. It must be a spirit <laughs> name or something. Now, now you guys are dad and son, correct? Yes. Yeah. Now, I also want to point out that this is a uh, milestone for us, Keith, because this is the first time we've ever had two guests on, and you guys wanted to do it together. You said, this is what they told us. They, they said, we, we we just have great chemistry, father and son. We, we like doing stuff together, and it just it, it doesn't work with just one of us. So I said, you know what? And I actually ran it by Keith. I said, what do you think? And Keith said, we've been wanting to do it, but let's go for it. So we're going to go yeah. for it. So. Yeah. With that said, uh, let's get into it, guys. So um, tell us, I guess I'm going to start off with you, Dan, since you're your dad. Um, how did you get into long-range shooting? Was it something you started and then Forrest came into, or did you guys start it together? Tell me the story about this. I started uh, getting interested in hitting targets beyond two or 300 yards, I guess about 2002, 2004. And I began to be self-taught at that time. I did attend a long-range shooting school about 2006. And that school is now not in business. But um, I just began building the knowledge. And we began varmint hunting and target shooting on a large 1,500-acre farm in Virginia. And then one day the landowners wanted us to show them how to do it. And uh, so we did. And they were so thrilled. Well, the next thing you know, they're inviting us to start a business. And so we'll, we'll, we'll give you the place to do it. If you want to start a business, go for it. And I said, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is that where you guys, is that where you guys shoot now? Is that, that 1500 acres? In that same general area. And we do have extreme long range targets set up on that original property. Yes. Wow, that's a that's a gold mine. Fifteen hundred acres is like, whew, that's nice. Mike, before we get too far, Dan Forrest, I need to know how. What's the longest that you've rang steel with a shotgun? <laughs> uh, not that far. Maybe like eighty yards. I don't know. <laughs> not that far with a I was expecting a little bit more than that, Forrest. Well, I I don't really do much with a shotgun. What's funny about that question is. I know Keith because Keith likes to shoot trap, and I, I know there's a little bit of uh, him being trying to be funny here. But Forrest didn't miss a beat; he just answered the question. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's well, funny. I was figuring with like a slug or something, you probably could reach out there. If you, you, know, oh, you know. certainly could, especially uh, a rifled slug. Probably my favorite shotgun we have is that uh, Remington Tac 14, and uh, with rifled slugs like those uh, Fioki low recoil rifled slugs. Uh, it is quite accurate with those. I mean, at 30, 40 yards, if you do your part, you can seriously land touching shots. That's a 14-inch I think I've given you a new challenge. I think you got to see if you can hit something at like 500 yards or so or maybe longer. <laughs> All right. So let, let, me, let me put Keith's shenanigans on hold for a second here. So let's go back to you guys starting your business. Uh, and Dan, you said that you started out kind of like self-taught and you, you kind of wanted to do this. Um, and you told the story about the the farmers, but like, what made you decide? I mean, I, you know, I, Keith and I have t- taken people shooting um, and tried to introduce new people to the sport because we believe in in trying to further the Second Amendment. It's part of why we do the show. But 
you have to really want to work with people. You have to really want to teach people. And, you know, what made you say, I want to teach people this skill, you know, on your website, like you say a lot about like, we're not building snipers here. You know, we're building, I think you call it, you, you refer to it as American riflemen. So what made you want to do this? Um, well, I mean, I was getting tired of driving a truck for one thing, but, uh, I didn't realize it would grow into what it would become. Um, it's, it's grown farther, more than we ever would have thought. Uh, it was we, supposed to be a retirement job for you. Yeah, I was only going to do it on weekends. Right, maybe a couple weekends a month or something like that. And, I mean, within a year, I mean, we just hardly had any dates that weren't booked. And just uh, took on off. And uh, wow. you know, we stay high on the Google search. Uh, and you know, we're always on the first page if you do long-range shooting school. And usually we're near the top. But one of the biggest reasons that we do what we do is we love seeing just your average American be able to take a rifle and scope combination under $1,000 and be able to successfully engage targets out to 1,000 yards and beyond because that's a very doable thing. And I think the more people that know how to do that, the safer America is going to be from enemies both foreign and domestic. That's the way we look at it. Yeah, so so really quick story here. Um, and Keith, I don't think I even told you this story, but um, – when I was looking at you guys, so I had looked at you your site a while ago because I am interested in, in in learning this skill. And uh, I had looked, I found it a while ago. First of all, I think the name is phenomenal. So let me just start by saying, by far, you have the best name of any long range shooting school. <laughs> so I love the name, but uh, so I found it, and I you know, and I was like, oh, this is where I'm going. Like it's you know, it's a very reasonable, and we'll get into the pricing later. But it's very reasonable, and it's close for me. It's you know, it's in the on the East Coast, and I kind of put in the. Uh, in the back of the uh, file cabinet, so to speak. And then when I was doing the show, I said, you know what? This would be a really good topic. Let me look back into those guys at Bang Steel. And I did. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, you know, this is like almost too good to be true. I, I, let me look at some other schools. And we'll get, and we'll get into pricing in, in, a bit, in a minute. But I said, maybe these guys, you know, with the old saying, right? The old saying is you get what you pay for. And I said, you know what? I said, I don't know. I don't want to bring guys on the show if this is like something not on the up and up. And I started Googling reviews for you guys, and I have to tell you, if you are out there listening, just do this. Google and go to forums and look at the reviews on these two guys, and I'm telling you, you more than get what you pay for. I mean, like it, like the reviews were off the chart. So, you know, I, I think that's a testament to what you guys are doing because these are unsolicited reviews. These are on forums and nothing, n- nothing but rave reviews for you guys. Well, we try to keep it that way. Um, as far as I know, we haven't had a bad one. But, um, I mean, we keep it simple, and we've streamlined the curriculum through the years. And, um, you know, we bring people in, and, you know, you reason with folks. You begin reasoning with folks, and you get to know them. You get to figure where they're coming from. I mean, most of the people who come here naturally are conservatives. Uh, we're getting more liberal people now. I think more. Yeah, it is. Uh, that is <laughs> true. Oh, In the yeah. past year, we've had uh, several liberal clients, and you know they're wanting to learn to shoot for the same reason. I mean, some of these people believe they're not even more liberal; they're reasonable. Do you get into politics, or do you put their, their do you put their least favorite politician on the steel? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, did no you how did you find that out? <laughs> You've been trolling us, haven't you? Uh, I said least favorite. I didn't say who it was. That's uh, affectionately known as Coon Man. Uh, you can 
uh, use your imagination there. But that's what he called himself in med school. Yeah. Uh, but we're we're not harming a fly. All we're doing is shooting steel, and um, you know we we always leave room for people to improve their position. So let me let me just say this early on in the show. I haven't really said this right. exact thing in a while, but I it holds true to this day. When we first the first couple episodes. Uh, I said to Keith, I was like, you know, I really don't want to get into this whole like, uh, these libtards and blah. I don't want to do that because listen, seriously, like I don't want to like alienate someone because of their political viewpoints. First off, that's what liberals do. That's, that's what the far left does. And I, and I don't believe in that. I think as reasonable Americans, everyone has the right to the second amendment, regardless of your political views. And, and Amen. yeah, sounds like Dan and Forrest are doing that. Yeah, and and I so I first off I really think that that's great that you guys do that, and you know what? Maybe you'll see some people start to vote based on the Second Amendment instead of other stupid things that you know they should maybe leave alone. And I think excellent point. Um, and I'll go ahead and elaborate on something you may not believe, but God's my witness. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not going to name the, the young fellow, but uh, he uh, came, uh, did wonderfully uh, in a class, a uh, recent class, and. Uh, I uh, happened to see in his email sign, signature line, uh, his website, and um, well, he he's um, he farms um, hemp, and oh, uh, <laughs> uh, it gets better. Uh, he's a performing artist who does body paint and comes out with nothing but that on, and I mean nothing. And I found that online. Interesting. And um, I'm thinking, what? Wonderfully, I didn't see that. Yeah, I can always <laughs> wish I hadn't. But, uh, and then, uh, according to his website, you know, he is transitioning to a woman. That's what he's doing. Say that, say uh, that one more, say that one more time for me, Dan. I, I missed that. Okay. Part. According to his website, he is transitioning oh. to a woman. Okay. And he, yeah, but Hey, here he comes. Yes. He shoots, he, he, he joins a class. He shoots lights out. He's got good equipment. Um, very, very paradoxical. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, one of these things, it doesn't belong here. <laughs> well, but I, I still, I, I like to do. Yeah. yeah. But even regardless of that, you taught him how to ring steel at a thousand yards. Yes, we did. Yes. And he, and he was very good. Very at it. good. Very good at it. So wait a minute. So wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You mean to tell me that you could be completely opposite, completely different than somebody else, and you can still enjoy doing something like shooting together? That seems so odd to me. How could that be? Yeah. Well, it does, if you listen to crazy. the leftist media that wants to yeah. – you have to believe this Yeah, way. they and say that can't happen, right? The left, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. I mean, that's uh, just not the way things are. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know who Daniel Shaw is, but we had him on the show. And, um, you know, he's a, a really great trainer, and I'm a big fan of his. I fanboy out on him quite a bit. And uh, he uh, he told, he mentioned a guy who comes to his classes, and he wears like a uh, – a, uh, LGBTQ rainbow flag on his plate carrier, and and Daniel was like, "I don't care." He's like, "Guy's here to shoot. He's here to you know kick butt." And yeah, good for him. His right Second Amendment is just as solid as any. Amen. 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 You know, I was trying to figure out why this fellow I described to you. Why does he want to learn long range rifle? Then I realized he runs a, a marijuana farm. It's legal. This will, you know, it's legalized pot here in Virginia. You can do that now and. Um, uh, I thought, okay, he's just probably waiting for the world to fall apart like everyone else, and he needs to guard his uh, plants. Yeah, that's my best guess. Yeah, so well, <laughs> so I mentioned, uh, 
Yeah, definitely. So I mentioned um, a few minutes back that we were going to get into pricing. So I want to I want to put this out there for everybody listening, and I want to throw it sort of throw the gauntlet back to you boys. Most other schools, and I I didn't look at you know I didn't look at a hundred schools, but I looked at a good handful, and most other schools were anywhere between eight hundred and two thousand dollars, and for most of those, those were three day courses. But I, there was a couple that was two day courses, but for the most part. It was anywhere from eight hundred to two thousand for a three day course. I actually thought the one that was eight hundred dollars. I was like, wow, like that's actually like when they talked about it. I was like, wow, for three days, that's actually not bad. Um, but you guys are running your course, and this is for everyone listening. They do a four hundred dollar two day class, and they and you guys also offer some like private classes and stuff. But so you guys are shaving off a day. You're dropping it by the the lowest price by half. And yet you guys are getting guys to ring steel out to at least a thousand yards. And I think you guys on your website say even some people are shooting out to a mile. How, yes, how are you able to compete with them both on financial and, and the results that you're getting in a two day class? How, what is your secret and tell everybody listening, like what they can expect and why they're getting this value. The, um, the first thing is these three day classes that a lot of these schools are running uh, you're going to be one of no fewer than 20, 25 people. And you may have one instructor and you will have an encounter with that instructor, you know, two or three times an hour during the day. So he'll just say, okay, shoot this target, just keep shooting. And he walks away. And so you're kind of on your own. And uh, so that's, that's not doing you a lot of good. Uh, we don't let classes grow any bigger than about eight people on average. And if we have eight, we've got at least three of us instructors with them. The filler material, we call it the oatmeal and the sausage. Uh, day one of a popular class in Texas, you never even go to the range. You sit there in front of a whiteboard all day while they describe to you exterior ballistics and how the bullet flies and how many RPMs a bullet of this ballistic coefficient needs to spin at to remain stable and on and on and on ad nauseum. That information will absolutely not help you be a better shooter. Uh, we had a Hendrick Motorsports engineer in a class. He designs race engines. It was from Morrisville, North Carolina. He said, what do you think about Brian Litt's Applied Ballistics? Should I read that? And I said, if you're going to design bullets, you might want to. <laughs> I said, you need to think about this. I said, you design race engines. I said, how much does the driver who gets this engine you designed, how much does he need to know about crank angle, piston metallurgy, compression ratio, dwell time, all this? He said, well, nothing. And I said, exactly. And you don't need to read Brian Litt's. So you can get day one off your desktop right there. So you concentrate on what is necessary. I teach people how to understand what is important and what's not important. I do the classroom stuff. Forrest does the firing line stuff. And, um, you know, we kind of work that way together as a team. He does the same thing. You know, he will show you what doesn't work. Some of the popular things people are doing that do not work. Um, we just streamline the curriculum. We're not paying a land lease. You know, that's one of the reasons some of these schools are so expensive. Sure. You know, they're going to debt. Uh, Gunworks was in huge debt. They had Last to- I heard, it was like $2 million of debt. How do you do that? I, I mean, I <laughs> and that's, that's another thing is a lot of these other uh, shooting schools that are somewhat popular, 
um, maybe not as popular as, as we are as far as the clients that are going through them, the number of them anyway, uh, what they've done is they've taken out a loan for two or three million dollars because they've had to buy a million dollar piece of property then get it clear cut and then, you know, rent or buy excavating equipment to make all these dirt berms and all this uh, shooting shelters and rooms and conference uh, places and stuff like that. I mean, that's why they have to charge what they do for the classes. We don't have any of that. So we are able to, um, you know, price our, our classes very affordably. You did a better job. You did a better job at controlling your expenses, and you don't have the overhead that all these other other companies have. Correct. It's a great business model. So, Forrest, I have a question because uh, Dan had said that you know he does the classroom and you kind of do more of the shooting part. So, you know, when it comes down to it, the shooting part, uh, sorry, the classroom part is absolutely necessary. But like when it comes down to it, you're where the rubber meets the road. And my question for you is, when you get people out there on on the line do you feel like they already have because of that classroom part do you feel like they already have um sort of the tools that they need is that like are you finding that that system is working out really well sure there are certain things that have already been covered by the time that uh you know it's my turn so to speak to uh to go through with the clients you know what what i normally do which is the uh, firing line demonstration. I tell them how you want to get behind the gun, how you want to use the rear bag, the bipod, your trigger squeeze, uh, different things about the scope, um, and that sort of thing. That's uh, that's mainly, or that's my main job, uh, is to, to make sure people are comprehending and understanding uh, the fundamentals when you get behind the rifle. What, what would you guys say some of the things that your competition, some of these big schools, for example, are, are saying about you guys that just isn't true? And you don't have to name names unless you want to, but you know, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit of some of the things that you hear that people say about you that just aren't true and, and help dispel some of that stuff. What we hear most often are really just people fishing to find out how busy we are. Uh, we'll get an occasional phone call. Um, and these people are involved with other schools. Okay. So somebody will call and say, yeah, I was thinking about coming down this, uh, that sometime late summer, fall, uh, when are you doing classes? Yeah. What, what's your calendar look yeah, like? Yeah. Let me see your calendar. And no. I said, we don't publish a calendar. <laughs> we don't publish a calendar for multiple reasons. You tell me a, a, a window of about two weeks when you'd like to come and I will let you know. What days are available. Uh, yeah. And that's how we handle that. Now it is possible that things have been said that we haven't heard such as well they don't have any snipers on their instructors team okay that is not really an accolade <laughs> and I, I, first off let me just start by saying i am not knocking any military sniper <clears throat> or anything like that i will just simply say this as far as marksmanship goes for a military sniper uh marksmanship is probably 10 maybe 20 percent of what it's is their job. They've got a them. lot of other things. Eighty percent of it is sneaking into different areas undetected, right. Right. remaining undetected, getting out, getting out undetected. I mean, that is extremely difficult, and that's what our snipers are good at. As far if as I can, market. if I can interrupt you guys for just one second, I just want to point out two things. One, on these guys' website, they flat out say, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but let's give our boys their due. They are very, very, you know, well trained cable. Like you guys do not in any way, shape, or form uh claim to be Despair. sniper trainers. Yep. And 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 right. you guys give the 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 proper um respect that those guys deserve. So I want to point that out first. Second, 
I want to also say, just to reiterate, when we talk about snipers, and if you've ever watched any documentaries on these guys, the training they go through, it's about dealing with sleep deprivation, being able to deal with figuring out calculation in your head while there's distractions going on all around you. There's a lot more than just the shooting piece. We, well, yeah, like Forrest, know, like Forrest just said. I mean, it's it's 20% shooting and 80% all this other stuff. Yes, but I want to reiterate that because I, I don't want people to think that what these guys are training people to do is become snipers. They're training you no. to become a long range shooter. That's a well and I think difference. that's and I think that's the point that Dan was trying to make was that absolutely you know he hears that that his that people out there say that that Dan and Forrest don't have a sniper on the crew, but the reality is is what they're saying is you don't really need to have a sniper on the crew. You need to have well you know and to elaborate further if I could please yeah uh, you'll also notice from that link you read the army, the US Army did a study a few years ago. They found out your average competition shooter was three times more precise and more accurate than their own snipers. Yeah. You saw that, I trust, right? Yes. Click on that link. Yeah. Interesting story. This is why David Tubb, as a civilian, has been hired to train Army snipers as far as the marksmanship part of it. I believe Todd Hodnett also does train some. Todd Hodnett teaches the Navy SEALs. This is another civilian instructor. Right, they're using civilian instructors for a reason, and that right. is because they found that as far as marksmanship is concerned, as far as making a first-round hit on a target, um, the competition world uh, in the U.S. Is, is better at doing that. They're really good. That's competition shooters are excellent. What the military does well is it tra- it trains these guys to do. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Kirkham on the show that that episode just released Keith, and yep. one of the things he said was about special forces. He said they're not looking for the most athletic guy. They're not looking for the smartest guy. They're looking for a guy who basically does a lot of things really well and doesn't and quit. It, and doesn't quit. That's exactly right, Keith. So you know, let's let's uh, you know we can kind of uh, move away from the topic. Well, I, got a, but, I, I got a couple more questions. If yeah, go ahead, Keith. Um, we, Dan Force, we, we talked a little bit in the intro about, um, you know, Mike and I saying that, you know, reloading and long range shooting kind of go hand in hand. Um, is, do you think reloading ammo is a best practice? I know on your website, you talk about not needing the most expensive ammo out there, but, uh, is, is reloading a good practice? Well, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I am the originator of optimal charge weight load development. If you've ever heard of OCW load development, that was my baby, I came up with that system in 2002, probably right along in there. Um, very much a fan of reloading. However, factory ammunition has got really, really good mm-hmm. in the last 10, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, talk about a company like Spark Munitions. I mean, they are making some top-notch quality stuff, and it makes you question, is reloading actually going to save me money uh, doing this? Uh, that, yeah, there's I definitely mean, time involved, right? If your time exactly. is worth anything to you, I mean, you can buy ammunition across the counter, so to speak, right now. Well, that'll do. Maybe it. not right now, because I mean, there's <laughs> a, we we I, know I what mean, you mean. <laughs> that's one thing I was just going to say is, uh, as far as reloading is concerned, um, one of the biggest advantages to being able to reload is in times of, of you know shortages like, like this. What we're facing yeah. right now is you're able to make your own ammo. What you'll most likely find is you can still find the components to put this ammo together. Uh, like for instance, you know, nine millimeter is almost non-existent at the moment as far as, you know, a loaded cartridge, but I can buy brass and I can buy bullets and I already had powder on hand so I can make nine millimeter. 
So I, I was reading on your website a little bit, and you guys, I, I, I would like to talk a little bit about a, a misconception that I have about long range shooting that kind of came up from when I was reading about you guys. And that is, is that people want all of the magnification possible, right? Like I want to be able to see a mile around and you guys kind of talk about how that's not a best thing. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you don't need the biggest scope possible? Well, one of the biggest reasons is if you have a scope that goes up to 29 power or something, uh, and you're shooting targets at that power, you're going to have a very hard time seeing your impacts downrange. What I part of the online demonstration that I, uh, you know, give people is uh, what I tell them is that the optimal power range for what we're doing is between 10 and 16 power, because uh, in that setting there, you're going to have a nice wide field of view where you can see your impacts, and that's a super important part of long range shooting because if you're not seeing your impacts downrange then you're going to have to have a spotter there with you telling you where you hit. And that's just not something you're always going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, zooming it up to, to 30 power or <clears> some <throat> of these new scopes are going 35 power is, uh, is really not an advantage at all. So if I can elaborate on that, because I'm actually curious about the, my, this myself. Um, uh, when I'm looking at setups, um, I've looked at those really high-powered scopes and I have to be honest, like we'll we'll change gears a little bit. Keith and I are into twenty two shooting. We really like that. And my scope on my twenty two is a it's a variable scope. I think it's like a three to nine or something like that. And I sometimes feel like when I'm dialed all the way up, even at hundred yards, the target just looks so small. Like if I'm yes. looking to shoot a really small, you know, crosshair, I just can't really. Well, nine thousand at hundred yards is is not that much. I mean, I would recommend something more than that for. Uh, 22 at 100 yards, probably uh, 15, 16 power. Right, but uh, you're talking about 16 power for a thousand yards. So that just seems when right. you, you know, when you uh, extrapolate that out, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of magnification it for a thousand. Seem like it, but as far as you know, your field, you want to maintain a field of view large enough that you can see the dirt splash. Like if you were to miss off the left edge of the target and you're on 29 power and you're shooting something, that's like the away, problem. You're not going to be able to your get field back of view. It has to do it. with the field of view. The, the higher you dial the magnification, the smaller your field of view is. When you pull the trigger on the gun, you're going to get a recoil burst. It's going to jump, and if if it's uh, a really tight field of view, there's a high likelihood that you're not going to be able to get gonna, back on target. It's going to move enough. off. You know, yeah, you're not going to see you. where that bullet lands. And, and you can't make your adjust. You can't make your adjustment because you didn't exactly. See you have to. And what we t- teach our shooters is a quick follow up. You shoot. You see where you impacted, and run the bolt and hold correction. We just use the phrase hold correction within five ten seconds, even fast. Yeah. The, the better you get, you can have a second shot on the way in two or three seconds. You literally can. Yeah. I can have yeah. a follow up shot on the way in one second. <laughs> yeah, I've videos. seen that. As you get <laughs> well. It- it's funny because as I was reading this and as I was reading what you guys were talking a little bit about, and now that you're describing it again in a little more detail, I experienced this myself last season. I was, I'm in a 22 league in the winter and I was doing fairly well. And uh, by the way, Mike, I figured I found out tonight I finished fifth in the league, which was pretty happy. I was pretty happy with for good for you, you know, just starting this for the first time. But I was, I'd say I was probably about halfway through the league and I got talking to a few other guys about, you know, my scope and what I was using and they were asking me how, you know, what setting I had my magnification to. And they all kind of looked at me like, you have way too much magnification for what we're doing. And I backed it off and I suddenly got more accurate. 
you know, just by backing off my magnification, I found that I wasn't, you know, I, I'll tell you the reason for that. Uh, if you're ever shooting unsupported or off of something that where you're not, this was offhand. This was offhand. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah. if it was offhand, especially when you've got that magnification up, you're amplifying every little bit of uh, Correct. movement and the heartbeat that you've got. And you start fighting against exactly. it. Exactly. You start fighting against it and then you start pulling shots off um, before you meant for them to go off. So, um, that that makes a off. lot of sense, actually, oh, because yeah. everything is so dialed in so tight. It's a lot of movement. Well, that field of view, like you were talking about, Dan, right? Yeah. You know, that's what really was. Yeah, and seeing that impact is critical. Otherwise, you're going to be married to a spotter. You know, a, a military sniper who did not have a book for sale once said, there's been a lot more enemy killed with the second shot than the first. And oh, he's just speaking from truth and experience. The first shot was a slight miss, but we held correction, and we got the second one on the way before our target even realized what was going on. You know, and that, that's uh, what you strive for. So just because we're on this, and I'm really interested in this, and I know Keith is too. Um, so are there scopes that are so, that are variable enough that you could have the best of both worlds, that you could have like a lo- you know, low enough, but also dial up to 29 so that if you had a spotter, you could really dial it in close? Does that exist? Yes. Uh, what I use in competition is a Night Force attacker. It's a 5 to 25. And okay. I find in my PRS competitions, uh, if I'm shooting off a barricade or something like that, I want it around seven, eight uh, power somewhere right in there. If I'm uh, if I'm shooting prone at a thousand yards, I might zoom it on up to sixteen, maybe maybe twenty power, no more than twenty power. Um, depends on what cartridge I'm shooting. If it's something that's just super low recoil, and I know it's not going to be an issue at all uh, as far as field of view goes, I might zoom it up to to twenty. But normally, sixteen is is the most I'll shoot, even even at a mile. But, uh, yeah, the best of both worlds there. So since we're talking about the actual, uh, the results of shooting, um, real quick question. What percentage of your students are able to bank still at 1,000 yards, would you say? All of them, 100%. Yeah, they don't get to leave. Yeah, they don't leave the course until they hit it. Well, Mike, that sounds like we got to go if we have to hit a mile before we leave. That's part of the reason we get such good reviews is because if it's, you know, 3, 4 o'clock when we normally leave, and somebody's not met their objective, we will we will bend over backwards. We will make sure that they meet their objective. This is an objective-driven course. It's not something that uh, it's exactly six hours, and we're leaving the range right at 3 o'clock. It's not something like that. I mean, we will make sure that all of our clients have met their objectives when they leave. And that's, that's another thing that we hear um, that people like about our class more than, than other classes that uh, from our competitors is yeah. some of our competitors – they, it's not an objective-driven class. If you, if it's three o'clock or whatever time they leave, and you've not met your objective, you just leave and empty-handed there. So now, what about going from a thousand yards to a mile? What is the like when when you go jump from a thousand yards to a mile? Because uh, you're talking like another like seven hundred yards, right? That's it's quite much, a bit. Much harder. Um, yeah, seventeen hundred and sixty yards is your mile point. But uh, the bullet will spend more time getting from a thousand yards to the mile than it took it to get to a thousand yards. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's consistently slowing down. Um, people think a three hundred eight won't reach a mile. We prove it almost every day that they do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. Um, folks think the three hundred eight's not, you know, practical past eight hundred yards. It does simply not the case, um, and we know a very good marine sniper that will agree with us. 
he's he's made good shots at extreme range, you know, in Afghanistan with a 308. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm switching back to a 308 um, now after shooting a six millimeter dasher for several months now. Uh, I'm not knocking the dasher. That's an amazing cartridge. It's no recoil, shoots like a laser, but I'm tired of not really being able to see the target just get jolted when it gets hit. I mean, I, I've hit targets and matches with that gun that didn't get scored because they did not realize it hit. That's how little energy that it has. <laughs> so, I, I mean, the other kind of thing that you want to think about is in a freedom situation where you're trying to defend your freedom, you want a cartridge that has some knockdown. And that's another reason I've gone back to the 308. Well, I have a thing I say with, you know, because a lot of these PRS shooters are shooting what I call Skeeter, like mosquito Skeeter cartridges. Yes, they will hit the target, and that's how you score points. But, you know, if uh, the wheels will come off of everything, uh, so to speak, um, you don't want that. You know, you don't want something that's got no power. <clears throat> um, so my thing is I say, would you rather hit 90% of your targets and neutralize half of them, or would you rather hit 80% of your targets and neutralize all of them? Right. So we're more in that latter camp. Um yeah. You're not going to hit every target, you know, um, that's just the norm of things, but, um, you want to hit more than you miss for sure. And the ones you hit, uh, you want to get their attention, so to speak. So, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about, dare I call it Dan and, and Forrest, if you don't like it, let me know, but dare I call it, you have a simplistic view of equipment necessary for long range shooting. You know, you even show some rig setups that I would call affordable. And, you know, I like your perspective on it. And um, the reason I'm going to kind of lead you a little bit into what I'd like you to talk about. What I already know your belief on that is, is because Mike and I have done a few episodes about survival plans and things like that. And I feel like your position on why you know, you can have a, a popular caliber like a 308 or something like that and, and not have the, the most expensive equipment. And I, I wanted to let everyone hear you guys talk a little bit about why you feel that way. Let me give you a, a, an object lesson from a Monday and a Tuesday in a, in a week, two years, three years ago. Monday, private class, one-on-one, a fellow shows up. He's from, I think, the Richmond, Virginia area. He has a Knight's Armament AR-10. They do not grow on trees. They're very expensive. He has a $4,000 Leupold Mark 8 scope. He's got great ammunition. Uh, the Knight's Armament was it seven, eight, eight thousand dollars. I think I think you can get them for about six. Six thousand. The model that he had was it was like. So he's got more than ten thousand dollars worth of gear here. Right. He shot well. He he met his objectives. He was very happy, and he loaded up and he went home to where it was Richmond, um, singing our praises, and we were happy to do that. He did he did reasonably well. He met his objectives. The next day was a Tuesday. A nineteen year old young man from Long Island. <laughs> his mother was so liberal she took the guns away from his GI Joes. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And he had told her, he said, when I get old enough, I'm buying a rifle, just so you know. <laughs> He's old enough. And he buys, he goes to a Walmart somewhere in New York and buys a 30 six Remington 700 straight off the shelf. 
He orders a Bushnell 10 power, fixed 10 power mill dot scope. Excellent choice for this kind of shooting. And they're not expensive. Like 200 bucks. 200 bucks will get you that, and it really will do the job. A Bushnell Elite mill dot 10 power. I think it's the 3200 or something. Something like that. Yeah. So then he comes on down. He's got some factory Hornady ammunition. And that young man shot lights out. He shot so well. He shot circles around Mr. Knight's armament. <laughs> uh, he did extraordinarily. He did so well, and I was so happy with him. I, I gave him a $400 rangefinder. I gave him a rangefinder worth more than he paid for the class. <laughs> sent him back to Long Island. I said, you know, keep the freedom. Yeah, another American yeah. patriot. And that's exactly hey. something I said earlier. Uh, in the segment, but uh, the more people like that that we can train to engage targets out to a thousand yards, and he is deadly at a thousand yards. I would not want him shooting at me at a thousand With yards. That yeah. And I mean, that's a rig that he's probably doesn't have seven hundred dollars in, including in, in bipod scope, rifle, everything. Yeah. I would not so, be shooting at me. I, I mean, so popular caliber, popular gun. I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna let you off the hook a little bit on where I was going with this. Is why do you think that is so important to train with stuff like that? You, you, you know, I, I, I that's what you're going to find, you know, right. it's uh, not realistic for everybody to have a $7,000 comp rig. I mean, because not everybody has $7,000 to blow on comp that. rig competition. Rig. Right. right. So, so crap hits the fan, right? You got it. You're in survival mode. You're, you're living, you know, off the land here and you got to figure out what's going on what are you going to come across right that's where i think you guys we want to train people how to use what you would come across and that's what we're doing these are like uh hunting weight 30 l6 hunting weight 270s you can make them work i've heard a lot of feelings with that savage uh 110 we got yeah i've heard some feelings with that sucker (laughs) there's there's a picture of it on our way it's not heavy you know, you can carry it. It's not heavy. It works. Got a good muzzle brake on it. We like control muzzle brakes. So stoprecoil.com. That's who we deal with. And they and I, we don't recommend that unless we know that they're great. And they are. You need a good muzzle brake so that gun doesn't kick off target on you. But, uh, you know, these are the guys that, you know, will step up. Uh, uh, that young man from Long Island. And we've had several clients from Long Island. And some of the better competition shooters we know live in Manhattan. Yeah, uh, I mean, you think, oh no, they wouldn't have guns, and yes, they do. So I want to, I want to piggyback off of Keith's question um, because you guys sort of, um, you are not a big, big fans of the dependence on electronics for long range shooting, and um, you teach you what you claim is a faster and better way. Um, So, um, I'm notoriously bad at math. So my my question is, can you train someone who's notoriously bad at math to shoot these long ranges? Because I just, I, I have a real issue with it. You know? I'm terrible at it too. I mean, fortunately, that's not something you have to be very good at to do this. That is a, a big misconception with long range shooting. Um, I, I saw a meme on Facebook a while back and it said something like uh, the sniper is the deadliest man on the battlefield because he's learned how to weaponize math. Uh, well, whoever wrote that does not know too much about what a sniper has to do because there is almost no math involved. As far as making the shot, that's correct. I mean, we're talking third grade math. If you can do third grade math, mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can do what we're doing here. Right. Even that. But uh, Keith and uh, I guess Mike, y'all y'all both do twenty two competitions. Keith does. Well, uh, we we both- have we have. 
Go ahead, Mike. I'll let you. We 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 both have custom built or semi custom built twenty twos. Um, we like shooting twenty twos. Keith, I don't I don't competition shoot. Keith has. Uh, well, that's he, not true. That's not true. We we do a neighborhood competition. Yeah, we do a local. Neighbor. We do a local shoot. Yeah, but uh, but we, we you know we're we compete against each other all the time. Like, we love to just shoot twenty two. Let me mention we teach our clients to do that to take a twenty two rifle and practice, 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 especially. 50, 7,500 yards, or it's a little further if you can do it, and shoot subsonic ammunition. I'm sure you've already figured that out. If you're shooting yep. anywhere past the supersonic uh, range of that cartridge, it's going to go subsonic and start wobbling, whereas you can shoot a subsonic cartridge from the muzzle, and it will not have to transition. You can shoot quite accurately at 50, 100, even 200 yards, um, So, and further, actually. But the the intuitive wind holds that you'll develop, the ability to make intuitive windage holds to hit your target, the same processes will come back into play when you start shooting long-range centerfire high-powered rifles. All of those things are the same. So your best long-range uh, competition shooters are always spending a fair amount of time shooting 22 long rifles. Right, it's very beneficial. The furthest I've engaged a target with a 22 accurately was 600 yards on an 18-inch plate. Accurately, that is just insane. That's insane to me. And then I missed like the third shot and hit the fourth shot. It was it was pretty consistent. calm, calm wind. No, it, calm I was holding probably eight minutes of wind. It was on uh, Ron's RPR. Okay. It was um, Ruger Precision Rifle. Right. That, that's just that's just insane to me. It, yeah. Like I. Yeah. It'll, it'll get out. That's really that's really interesting, and uh, it definitely puts a different perspective uh, in terms of. I mean, Keith and I are talking about twenty twos all the time, but you know, <clears throat> we don't have that kind of uh, yardage here to shoot that. But it's uh, it's interesting. I always say, like, is it possible to do that? But I mean, obviously, it is, and it, a lot of that sounds like ammunition choice, which goes back to what we were talking about just earlier with reloading and making sure you're using the right rounds. And very interesting. Um, so before we move on to uh, our are uh, one of our favorite parts of the show, actually. Uh, I just want to give you guys a chance to kind of plug yourselves. Uh, could you tell everybody where they can find you on either social media and or website? Bangsteel.com. Um, you'll find us. You can go hashtag Bangsteel. You'll find some sites that are just using the phrase Bangsteel, not referring to us, but we're fortunate enough to get piled into anyone who does hashtag Bangsteel. Uh, plugging ourselves. Um our Facebook page is uh, Bang Steel. Uh, just search Bang Steel on Facebook. Right, just search Bang Steel on Facebook. You'll find it. Instagram, the real Bang Steel, the real. <laughs> and um, can't and, imagine why you had to pick that one. Yeah, <laughs> and also, um, oh, I have a book out. It's not a, a technical manual. It's a um, it's a book of fiction called Killer Trace: The Immersion. It is a fictional book where uh, some Doctors farm out guided hunts on human criminals. Uh, look me up, Killer Trace, Dan Newberry, on Amazon. See what you think. If you ask me to plug, I'm plugging. <laughs> no, plug. we want you to. Good job. Yeah, no, and uh, and all the links uh, <clears throat> to your social media and your website are going to be in the show notes. Anybody looking for them, obviously, go to the show notes, and, and you can find them real quick. So, guys, we have a game that we play on this show called Run and Gun, and uh, we were hoping How are we you guys to do this. We get it. I'm going to go uh, every other. So uh, what we're going to oh, do is I'm going to ask you a rapid fire question. I want you to give me the first answer that comes to your mind as quick as possible. 
we're going to start with Dan and I'm going to go every other for you guys. Normally someone would answer every question with you guys. You're going to do every other. So you guys ready to do this? This sounds dangerous, but go uh-huh. ahead. Don't You'll be fine. All right. So Dan, here we go. Number I'm one. Ready. What is your favorite gun in your personal collection? My dad's man looker show now 1937 bolt action. Okay, cool. For, Forrest, what gun would you buy if money was no object? Oh, probably like a M200 inter- intervention, like the 408. I mean, that would be a really cool gun to have. What does that run? C-RAM. Well, well, I guess you can consider that a gun. I mean, it's more of a weapon of mass destruction. But yeah, millions of dollars. Yeah, probably the C-RAM. All right. Uh, Dan, if you could have a drink with one person living or dead, who would it be? Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I, heard, okay. I heard Forrest. TJ, TJ, that's great. Oh, that. <laughs> All right, that's Forrest, great. favorite caliber? Uh, I'm going to say 308. Uh, Dan, favorite hobby not gun-related? Not gun-related. Well, it would be writing, uh, writing my uh, novel. So I have uh, the second one almost out. Very cool. Forrest, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh, um, infinite money. <laughs> I haven't heard that yeah, one yet. I figured and have like $100,000 just drop in my lap. Nice, nice. Dan, all hell breaks loose. Is it better to be armed or trained? Good question. Um, I would say armed simply because uh, the two times in my life I've had to draw a handgun, I never had to fire it. It stopped hostility immediately. Forrest, is it better to be loved or feared? Uh, I'm going to say loved. Dan. love, man. Nice. <laughs> Dan, rifle, pistol, or shotgun? Rifle. Of course. Of course. <laughs> that was a no-brainer. You, really no-brainer. Have to ask that. <laughs> you know what Cooper said? Uh, he said uh, a handgun's an instrument designed to help you fight your way to a good rifle. I've heard that many <laughs> times. Yes. Heard that, yeah. Cooper, go ahead. Uh, Forrest, you get the uh, the final question. You're in the worst scenario imaginable. Who do you want to have your back other than your spouse? I'll say Dan. He would. He I was going to say you got to say Dad. I was going to say Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great job, guys. And I was, I'm sitting there. I'm like, say Dad, say Dad. So, <laughs> well, well played for it. Let's mix it up. All right. So today on Let's Mix It Up. We're going to continue having a little fun with the boys here, and we're going to discuss putting together a long-range shooting setup. So, guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you some questions, um, and I we don't I don't want real detailed questions because obviously people are going to take your class; they're going to get a lot of information. But I have a couple of just real quick questions that I would like you guys to answer, if that's okay. All right. So the first one is, uh, can you explain to us the difference between a rifle stock and a chassis system, and which would you uh, which is preferable? Okay, so rifle stock versus chassis. Uh, the line's been kind of blurred a little bit because some of what like Manners is making, they're calling them chassis, even though they're more of a traditional style stock. Uh, my understanding, or at least my opinion, uh, as far as what makes a chassis is uh, something that's made out of aluminum. It's it's basically a metal um, stock, so to speak, and uh, most of them are going to have like a pistol grip configuration uh when i hear the word stock i'm thinking more 
of a uh, either like a composite material or a wood or some kind of synthetic plastic in uh, in a traditional style of uh, of stock. Now, with, like I said, with chassis, I'm I'm anticipating something that's going to be metal and it's going to have some kind of pistol grip on it. And I, as far as what I use, uh, I use a chassis. I like them both a lot. I can I can use either system very well. But as far as my competition rifle, I do use a chassis. It's an MPA Matrix. Okay, so you you prefer a chassis? Uh, I wouldn't even say that. I mean, I like them both so well. If I were using something like a Manners um, stock, they call them chassis. I mean, I, I call them stocks, whatever. Yeah. But uh, if I were using something like that, uh, that would be very very good, and I could use it quite well. I've used them before. So if I were going to build, uh, I would personally, from everything I've read, I'm looking at the Ruger Precision because I feel like it's a really good starter system and that's a chassis system. I agree. So so let's go off of a Ruger Precision. I know you boys are fans of that. So let's start with that. Someone buys a Ruger Precision. Okay. Now from there, um, can you kind of give us a little bit of a rundown of uh, scopes in terms of mills versus MOA and what you would prefer? If you had, if you had to only choose one, uh, Mills is seemingly wherever one is going, but MOA is still very popular. We teach our clients to know both systems because you may have to work with and coordinate with someone who only knows one of the two systems. So if you know both, you guys can make sense to one. And another. they're very easy to understand both systems. It's not like, you know, you've got to dedicate a lot of time into learning one system. I can have somebody understanding both systems in like 10 minutes. And that's important. I think you should understand them both. Uh, your but, if I'm all, but if I'm only buying one, I got to buy one. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it on my Ruger Precision. What do you tell me to buy? Because your typical mill scope today modern tactical mill scope is going to give you 10 mils per revolution of the turret um, your moa scopes are typically 25 we're seeing more and more of the big like 34 millimeter tube um scopes i mean or some of them are like 12 moa oh those that's difficult to use yeah they're very difficult to use so if i had to choose you're saying mills though that's the way to go yeah, yeah. mills are, are going to be uh, I'm not going to say easier to use or understand. It's just uh, another reason to go with mills is more people are doing that these days, so you're more likely to run into somebody using mills uh, as far as a tactical competition shooter or somebody that's interested in shooting long range. You're more likely to run into somebody uh, using mills than MOA. But do understand both. Understand both systems. Understood. Okay. So now bipods, I know it's on your website, but could you just tell everybody what you guys recommend? AccuTech is is it. There's nothing even close. A lot of people run Atlases and they're fine, but compared to an AccuTech, Atlas has just... got to be hating the living Hades out of AccuTech these days. AccuTech is so good. ACC. And what, what do those go for? Uh, about two fifty. Yeah. Now, if you only want to put about a hundred bucks in the bipod, um, I would get the uh, Harris SLM. Harris yeah. SLM Sierra Lincoln Music. That is a very good uh, bipod. About one hundred ten bucks. Right, and that, that's, that's what's mount, on my gun. Right, and, and that mounts on a sling swivel stud. Uh, you can get adapters that will make a mount on a Picatinny rail, but uh, like what I'm using on the MPA Matrix, uh, it doesn't even have a, an attachment point that I could put the uh, Harris SLM without an adapter. Right. Okay. Now, um, monopod or rear bag? The monopod is somewhat useful in certain situations. Um, the advantage to them is you don't have to carry another 
item with you into the field, you've got that there. But as far as uh, getting perfectly stable and uh, also recoil control, the monopod is not going to do as well as the rear bag. Now that we're talking about level, because you, you brought that up, I'm sorry, stable, that brings me to my next point. You guys highly recommend a scope level. I know that. I read that. So uh, We highly recommend steering wheels on your vehicles, too. <laughs> they, they are necessary they definitely are you can't, you can't make it without a level and anyone teaching um let's see the u.s army didn't even use levels for a while and there's some cat out in arizona that says he's a retired army sniper and maybe he is but he's teaching his clients that they don't need levels because the army didn't use levels well they do now the army uses levels now and it's probably because of david tubb trying to help get their snipers as accurate as they possibly could be you cannot tilt the gun left or right and make a long-range shot. You're shooting a parabolic curve downrange. It's like a quarterback throwing a football. It rises and falls on your vertical crosshair. That is after you are zeroed. Now, if you tilt the gun... The gun doesn't know it's tilted. Yeah, it's just going to send right. the shot up the vertical crosshair. Because that's what you've told it to do. And it's going to throw it off to the right if you're tilted right, and it'll throw it left if you're tilted left. Right, because it's going to throw it up the vertical crosshair but it cannot come back down the vertical crosshair because it's not going with gravity anymore. Yeah. You tilted it to the right. It's going to fall off in the yeah. direction it's that gonna, you tilted. It's going to do like a fade. It's going to do like a fade. Yeah. or a, That's what happens. So yeah, yeah, very critical piece of gear. Yeah, that, that actually, that, the way he just described it, like it clicked in my head. Yeah, that made sense to me as well. It can't, it can't fall on that vertical line. So the final part is not really so much with what's on the gun, but... Uh, dope cards, notebooks. Um, obviously, you guys recommend having some stuff to write down information, well, correct? If you, if you go to the line, to the firing line, and you have to forget either your rifle or your notebook, forget the rifle. Amen. You need to have that notebook right there with you, and you need to be recording what's going on. If you don't, then, you know, two or three range trips down the road, you know, an experience that was critical to something that's going on now, uh, you know, if it's not recorded, then you don't know what's going on. I mean, it needs to be recorded. Let's just say, you know, you started out, you've got a good 100-yard zero that day. Record that. Say, okay, my 100-yard zero was good. I did not have to change it. Um, let's say you're shooting uh, after that, you go to 400 yards, and you're shooting a nice tight group, and you got three shots in a half MLA cluster, and all of a sudden one goes a minute of angle high. And it's like, hmm. I don't think that was me. Uh, that's that's make a, a note of it. Yeah. Make a note. Say, hey, uh, I was shooting this target here, and I randomly had a shot go a minute of angle high. And what you might find is the next range trip, you might have something similar happen, and you might be glad that you had it recorded from before because now you can start addressing. Trying to figure out how that happened. Exactly. Uh, I have. I am told that some marine snipers write down what they ate that morning for breakfast. And that might sound not important, but if they got an upset stomach from it and they're, you know, anytime you're uncomfortable, if you're not comfortable on the gun, accuracy is going to suffer. Well, I think it's time for the boys to sit around and shoot the shit. Today on Shooting the Shit, we are going to talk about what goes into a great steak dinner. <laughs> and I know in the last segment, I kind of uh, asked a lot of the questions, but I'm going to now uh, re pay Keith the favor. Keith happens to be a little bit of an amateur butcher. And uh, I don't know if you guys have great steakhouses down there, but you know, here in New York and you know, in the tri-state area, we definitely have some really good steakhouses. The one that I love is Peter Luger Steakhouse in Brooklyn and in Long Got Island. Got nothing on me. Yeah. And I was going to say- I want to know how to cook a good steak. Let me ask you this. A client of ours 
quite recently. And he said, all right, get you a good ribeye. This is going to work best with a ribeye. I'm, I'm liking them already. Ribeye is my preferred. Good. Uh, he said put a meat thermometer in it and yep. put it, in my case, in the oven and just let the steak sit in there until the middle temperature is 115 or 20 degrees. And I guess you only got the thermometer in one of the steaks. You may have two or three or more. And then he said to pan sear it in an iron skillet on the stove after you've reached that temperature. At about 600 degrees. And I have butter, of butter, have in, butter the in the skillet in the stove yep. when it's in the oven, getting the 115 degree treatment. And then he said, bring it out of the oven and have that skillet with some butter in it ready at 600-ish degrees. And then 90 seconds on one side and flip it and 90 seconds on the other side. And then serve it. You tell me, is that is that gonna- so? He's he's right on the money. The only difference between his way and my way is I do it the opposite. So the way he's talking to you guys about doing it is called the reverse sear. That's, that's, what, he called it. that's what he called you, it. Yeah. You give your sear at the end, and yeah. I, I prefer I, I prefer cooking my sear at the fr- at the front end. So, and the only other difference that I would recommend that that wasn't discussed here is. Make sure you you take your steak out of the refrigerator and bring it to room temperature before you cook it. Don't don't cook it cold. You know you want to bring it to room temperature. So one, Keith, one 15, Keith, one quick 115, question. One eighteen. Sorry, Keith. Mm-hmm. One quick question for you, Keith. Um, so you said you like a ribeye. I tend to go for a porterhouse. When I go to some of the bigger steakhouses, they'll do like a steak for two, and I've with yep. with someone who eats the same. Peter Peter Luger does that. Yes. If I go with someone who eats the same type of steak, meaning rare which is what I eat, they say that it's better to get a steak for two or a steak for three. Is it because it's a bigger piece of meat and you're getting a better part of the cow? Is that the reason why? Well, yeah. So on T-bone, on, on porterhouses particularly, so uh, we've all heard the saying that um, scotch is whiskey, but whiskey isn't scotch. The same kind of applies with a porterhouse. So a porterhouse is a T-bone, but a T-bone is not a porterhouse. So if you get a steak for two at a place like Peter Luger where they serve porterhouses, um, or let me use a different example. If you're getting a steak for three at a Peter Luger, you are going to get a, a, a piece of that of that T-bone of that of that T-bone steak that has the higher percentage of filet mignon versus uh, New York strip. Oh. So that's why that's why they're talking about you're going to get a, a higher quality piece of meat because okay. you're getting towards the 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 slab of that of that cut that has more meat on it. Gotcha. Now, Keith, do you you eat your steak rare? I do eat my steak rare. If it's not bloody, it's rare. not worth eating. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about that. I mean, people go always. I I do a, a, for Christmas for my family for the last almost probably about fifteen years now. That's how I got into butchering. Actually, was was this Christmas dinner? I started cooking. Um, uh, a whole a whole rib roast, so ribeyes, but a whole rib roast, you know. And I would I would get a whole rib, and it's it's escalated now. I'm up to two ribs, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I I cook for like 27 people on Christmas. And um, what works out well about this is that I have a couple, you know, older family members will say that like it, you know, a little more on the well done side. And cooking a whole rib roast makes you be able to have a situation like we're talking about where most of the meat can be rare because you're you're cooking the temperature of the middle of the meat but the end parts of the meat will be a little bit more done for those people that want it so it's kind of like the the best of both worlds for us but i agree rare is the way to go yeah and i actually for us i'm gonna i'm gonna give one little caveat you said you know about bloody so i my wife and actually this is thanks to keith keith actually gave her a couple tips and she found a great 
uh, online um, timer that I will say it makes a great stake. So between what Keith told her and this timer, it, it really has made uh, great stakes. But I like it where when I cut into it and Keith, see if this makes sense. It has a little bit of that like fleshy, I almost call it like a purple. It almost looks purple to me. Not like ble- mm-hmm. and not bleeding all over the plate. I don't like when it comes in a puddle of blood, but I like the internal temperature to be cool and very, very. Well, that's rare. very rare. Yeah, that's I like it rare. very rare. Yeah. Yes, but so like if you want, yeah, I like what you put that there. I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to, you know, cut my steak and it's just like blood all over the plate. But I, I know what you're saying exactly. It's got a very cool red center, a purplish. Yeah, yeah like you're, you're gonna you're gonna want to take it out a little bit earlier than one fifteen if you want that kind of center. Yeah. So Keith, I'm gonna uh, let you have the last word on tonight's show, and I want you to give us best practices for a tremendous rare steak dinner. Tell us the, so the things we, we want start, to do. We started already. You know, room temperature steak, your favorite cut, whatever it happens to be. Mine is preferred to be ribeye, obviously. But you're gonna season it. I do a little bit of salt and pepper. I don't really do much else. Uh, you're going to make sure you have a cast iron pan. You're going to use olive oil or something like that in the cast iron pan. Not a lot, just enough so that the, the steak doesn't stick. And then I like to start with a, a sear first. So you're going to heat it up 607 degrees, 700 degrees, like Dan said. Do a quick sear, 90 seconds or so on each side. I also, lots of butter. Uh, I like to put in... Uh, butter and rosemary just before I put it in the oven. And I bring my oven usually up to, you, if you have a broiler, you can put the broiler on, but I bring it up to, you know, somewhere between 375, 400 degrees. I like to put uh, some fresh rosemary, butter in the pan, right in the oven. Uh, and then best practice is thermometer. Everyone wants to go with a time. Stop with the time, take the temperature. When the temperature reaches, like Dan said, 115 degrees, if you want it a little rarer than that, you can take it out around 110, 112, and then you're going to let it rest. You have to let it rest for a good couple minutes. Don't just go cutting into this thing. When you let it rest, you're letting all the juices redistribute within the, within the steak. So you take it out of the oven, put it on a cutting board, put it on a plate, tent it with some tin foil, let it rest for about 10 minutes, then go in, and there'll be some carryover temperature too. Don't get too alarmed with that, and uh, and enjoy. You and know, and so I will it, say, it, you told my wife about tenting it and giving it that cool time at the end, and and it, she's done that, and it has. I have noticed the difference for if you know it's a for huge, sure. Yeah, huge, yeah. huge difference yep. in, in just giving it rest. Keith, I really need to know something. Yeah, you go to the grocery store. How do you know when you're getting a good steak and a piece of shoe leather marbling marbling is what you're looking for you know um i mean you get a piece of london broil it's really tough honestly through through all the craziness that we've been going through this year i've i i finally decided i i I started splitting a whole cow with some people uh some friends of mine and i go through the butcher that's been teaching me a few things over the years and so you're saying go out and get a cow really, if you want a good steak. Yeah, it really do. I mean, you can get good steak at grocery stores. I don't want to I don't want to say that you can't do that, but if you're going to go to a grocery store, the best way to ensure you don't get something that's a piece of leather is to get a high quality piece of steak like a ribeye or skirt steak or flank steak. You know, something that has some marbling. You know, you're really Rolling, you're rolling the dice if you're going to pick up a London broil at a store and think that it's going to be tender. It's just, you know, 
Um, not always the case. And, and that's why I prefer to buy a whole cow because, you know, you can know the farmer, you know what they're feeding them. I'm not big on grass fed. I like, I like grain finished. I like fat in my meat. So I like when the cow is finished with some grain. I'm the same. I like, I like more fatty cuts. My wife hates it. She likes filet and I like porterhouse, which has more fat on it, you know? Yeah. So you got to go to like a tenderloin or something like that. But, you know, think about, think about where that piece of steak is on the cow. If it's on a muscle that's tough and being used all the time, that's what your steak's going to taste like. Yeah. You know? Uh, now, uh, one thing I was just going to ask, the fanciest steakhouse that we have in the general area is a Ruth's Chris. I mean, what do you guys think of them? Are they pretty good? Because as far as I'm concerned, the one I had there is probably one of the best. I like yeah, them. I've, I've had, yeah, I've had some great steaks from Ruth Chris. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with those franchises. It's just what happened to me, Dan, is, or I mean, Forrest, is that as I got learning this, this you know, hobby, I'll call it, I just started to be disappointed when I would go anywhere. I was like, I make a better steak at home. Wow. And so you can be Ruth Chris. That's what you're saying. I don't, you know, I, I, I feel pretty confident that I would put my prime rib up against anybody. You know, I, I well, y'all come down, y'all come yeah. down for a class. We're gonna, I'll bring some steaks. Yeah. I'll bring steaks. That's a you fair trade. That's a fair <laughs> That's trade a fair right trade. there. I'll bring all actually, I, I bring all, I make my own prosciutto today. I mean, we could get on a whole different topic with this stuff, but yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. So, listen, guys, uh, we want to thank the you know, the two of you for being on the show and telling us more about you know, uh, long range shooting. It's it's been, um, you know, it's been a real uh, pleasure and an education and. You know, I think uh, I know. I definitely at some point I want to get a rig set up, and I definitely want to come shoot we with you guys. And I, we got to sh- come hang out. With I'm you. sure Keith wants to come down. And we'll, you know, yeah. we we meet all these great people on this show, and it becomes almost like we want to hang out with the people that we we meet, and we want to meet people in person. So we have to make a trip down and see you guys in Virginia. So anybody out there, go check them out. Uh, like I said, all the the uh, links will be in the show notes. And to everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to listen to our show. You can find links for uh, all of our social media in our show notes. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter so we can keep the conversation going. And uh, again, boys, I, I really do appreciate you uh, hanging out with us tonight. And uh, Keith, tremendous job, especially on the uh, the steak advice. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks.